Hello and welcome to the Odd Years podcast. It's an odd-numbered year, which means that national elections are on hiatus, but the issues, trends, and personalities that impact electoral politics are always in cycle. One of the defining features of 2024 is the disconnect between what voters say they want and why it's almost certain that it's not what they will get. Specifically, voters want to see a 2024 presidential election that isn't a rerun of 2020. But each day that goes by, it looks more and more certain that Trump and Biden will face off for the second time in four years. This week, we speak with New York Times reporter and host of the podcast, The Run-Up, Ested Herndon, about how and why we got to this place. Why Democratic officials have rallied behind Biden, even as primary voters are eager for a new nominee, and how the Biden campaign will ultimately utilize Vice President Kamala Harris and whether this can improve her reputation with the national political class. I find Ested's insight, curiosity, and perspective to make him one of the most astute and sophisticated political reporters out there. I always enjoy learning from him. I hope you do too. Here's our conversation that was recorded on August 22nd. Ested Herndon, I'm so glad to get the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy for this. I've been looking forward to this for a while since I've been a big fan of your podcast, The Run-Up from the New York Times. And I want to start with this sort of 30,000 foot view here, which is we know a core issue for 2024 is the fact that there's this deep disconnect between voters who say, I absolutely positively do not want a rematch between Trump and Biden. Mm -hmm. And yet everything looks like it's set up to be a rematch between Trump and Biden. And you've spent really the better part of a year trying to understand why this is the case. What is the reason for this disconnect? What do you think? What is your time out on the road and your interviews? What what has that brought to you or sense of how we got here? Yeah, I mean, this was to me the important question that I feel like as a political reporter, I was getting from kind of outside of our ecosystem that I wanted to help square. Was people were like, how is this happening? You know, like, how does it feel like our political system is going in one direction when we had consistently seen, you know, not only in midterms, but even the elections before that, voters kind of embrace a, a call for normalcy, a call for working together. You know, we see record numbers saying they're dissatisfied with kind of the language and tone of politics, but we're getting the kind of same result. And so I think that that started for us and our work in the run-up before the midterms, kind of showing how we arrived at the point where kind of systems felt under threat. And more importantly, where individual votes didn't feel like they were having like a big impact, right? So you still have the Supreme Court, which feels like a locked-in kind of entrenched power, particularly on the right. You have kind of gerrymandering that in the world of post-Roe has locked in a kind of anti-abortion group on the state level. And so you had these kind of forces that felt kind of like these unmovable objects that we wanted to explain. And then as we got to 2024, kind of after the midterms, I think our driving question was, if we just had an election where millions of independent and swing voters and kind of the most important voters of the country said that this was kind of like a Republican extremism they wanted to reject, how can that lead back to a rematch between the same figures? And what we found really was that, you know, 
the large majority of the political apparatus, both DNR, was fairly invested in that rematch. On the Democratic side, a real sense that Republicans have created openings for them to really make gains, for them to have statewide wins that they didn't actually expect, you know, and that it's actually created an electoral advantage for the Joe Biden Democratic Party that they're not that ready to let go of and haven't really had to. And on the Republican side, they're in the rock and the hard place that I think we all kind of understand of our plurality of voters who won't move on from Trump and a majority of voters, maybe 50-ish percent, who are calling for them to think of other alternatives. And so I think that both of those realities are really important because I feel like our job is not only to tell people who might win and what the terms of that are, but also the things that exist outside of the electoral result. And so the mood, the dissatisfaction, the anger, the disconnect felt like things we wanted to explore, even as we're also exploring, hey, that doesn't mean that Joe Biden may not be the next president, or that doesn't mean that Donald Trump might not be the next president, too. Right. Well, tell me what you think about this theory. And I think your reporting really got to a lot of this, but that the forces that are keeping this rematch alive and likely are different on the Democratic and the Republican side. On the Republican side, it seems like many in the establishment absolutely want to move on from Donald Trump, but the voters do not. Absolutely. Whereas on the Democratic side, it's the voters who are saying, can't we have somebody else as our nominee? And the establishment is saying, nope, we got to keep things the way they are. We can't risk losing. Is that what you got as well? Mm. That's a great distillation. I haven't even actually thought of that that cleanly, but that's totally true. I mean, that's what I think it really comes down to on the Democratic side. We started at the DNC in in Philadelphia, where they were changing the state order basically on the whims of Joe Biden and that kind of senior advisory group who who were pretty clear that this was a play for make sure that Joe Biden remained the new Democratic nominee. You had the DNC members, frankly, tell us that they would have loved for another state to go first, that they didn't really have an interest in South Carolina going first. That was a Joe Biden decision. And that's a political decision based on, I think, the real reality coming out of the midterms, that for them, they saw a window where they could squash a lot of that talk for 2024, a lot of that rumbling for other candidates. And you saw the party really unite around him. That hasn't changed the reality on the ground, that for most voters, They are totally looking to move on, even if there is a respect for what Joe Biden has done in the last four years. You hear this from Democrats all the time, that they actually see him as a more effective president than even they have kind of guessed. And then at the same time, thinking that that might be something that's not worth looking ahead. On the Republican side, as you put it, it's the exact opposite. From the moment we started with them at the RNC and Dana point, you see that clear division between establishment and grassroots, a Trump base that is very activated and organized against pushing its own party and sees that as part of its role, you know, sees that as part of its actual mission is to change the party and bring it closer to Trump. And so, yeah, you have an activism from the Republicans that's working from the bottom up. But for right now, because Democrats aren't as motivated to really push their establishment base, it's allowed the kind of Democratic establishment to really ensure that Biden has a real glide path to the nomination. And that wasn't that clear last year. That wasn't where we were last year before the midterms. And that's something that's really been night and day since after those surprising results. So are you saying instead of if this had been a sort of typical midterm election in 2022 where Democrats get wiped out, Mm -hmm. that the calls for a different candidate 
that that would have been loud and clear? Or do you think that the elements that are keeping Democrats from challenging Biden, namely the fear that Donald Trump could beat another Democrat, would still outweigh the worries of Biden's political viability? Mm. I guess it's a cop out answer, but I will say both, honestly. I think they would be yeah. more loud and clear if the midterms didn't go that way. I do think you would have your kind of people who are flirting with national bids last year. I'm thinking of Governor Newsom in California, Pritzker in Illinois, the calls for Governor Whitmer in Michigan. I think that those things are things that were circling and there was kind of donor interest or even more so you have a kind of left that's left activated right now. And I think that's partly been an open space that's been there because Joe Biden in the first kind of four years of his term has brought them into the fold. I'm saying all of those actions Mm. have created, I think, an absence of people on the Democratic side who are willing to take on what we see in polling, which is that there is a group of people who are totally interested in alternatives, but there is not a political incentive for them to do that because that kind of lockdown around Biden has been so strong. But to your point, again, it's not clear that Biden is as weak as the numbers would say he is. Right. Because people's dissatisfaction, as you so well named last year, people's dissatisfaction doesn't inherently mean that they are going to go in a different direction. We saw this in the midterms. We see this kind of over and over right now. And so I don't think that we should take Biden's kind of low approval numbers or even people saying they're open to alternative to mean that those other candidates would have easily knocked off an incumbent president. But I do think those calls would have been louder, clearer, and the pressure on him would have been much greater in 2023. Like, I don't know if he gets away with the South Carolina thing if the midterms doesn't go the way that they did. But because that window created that political kind of insulation, I think it's allowed him to make these moves pretty unopposed, honestly. That's a very good point. And I think even beyond the somebody challenging Biden, someone serious, either hinting very strongly or putting the operation together, to challenge Biden is one thing, but I think you would have also seen calls for Biden to step down, really ratchet up, right? Exactly. Let's let him, exactly. It would just been let's angst. let him retire. Let's Democrat, let him go out. Yeah. Totally. Go out on his so own you terms. You would have seen more rumbling yeah. about like, you know, should he go out on yeah. his own terms? Is it good that he, but really like the reelection has been a, a smooth sale for, I think from their perspective from this point. And that's because of those midterm results. And I think we have to say it's because there's been a series of legislative wins and kind of personal. And I think Biden has frankly beaten some of the expectations that some of the, you know, vulture circling around him expected. Well, let's delve into that. That's a very good transition, Estad, because you also talked to a lot of folks on your podcast, both voters and elected officials, who see that the Biden administration and Democrats writ large, the party of Biden, being a little too cautious, being a little bit Mm -hmm. too much of this is who we aren't versus here's who we are, a frustration building of Mm -hmm. a party that doesn't really have an identity outside of, well, we're not MAGA. Yep. How do you think through that? And where does that go from here? Does that energy translate into something for Joe Biden going forward? Do these folks sit on the sidelines? And then what happens in the post-Biden era? Yeah, I think this is a really important thing to identify is that kind of layer under Biden, 
the criticisms of him that came through that 2020 race, that he was only really pitching himself as someone who was anti-Trump, that he didn't have a kind of affirmative vision for the country. There's still rumble around some of the Democratic communities. I would take abortion as an example. You know, that's been something that's really supercharged Democratic results in terms of people voting against Republican policies that are out of step with opinion, out of step with kind of majority view. But at the same time, it's not as if they're winning back affirmative abortion rights, more so than stopping new things from coming. And so when we talked to Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, he was saying that Michigan was an example of a state last year in the midterms, which put that referendum to the public and used it not only to kind of play defensive on what Republicans were aiming to do, but actually expand the process and write it into law. She's saying that only comes with the level of planning that she feels like there has not been a national strategy for Democrats to have. You know, another person we talked to was Alexis McGill Johnson, the president of Planned Parenthood, kind of about this exact point. And we were asking, what should the president be saying? is their position on kind of where abortion rights should go. And it was a really interesting conversation because her answer was really that she does not really want the president to have a set answer on that front. That she actually thinks that the focus should be on what Republicans are doing and that that is actually where they get the best political benefit. And that makes total sense to me in the kind of electoral brain. But at the same time, I think that's a reason why you're consistently seeing democratic base communities be frustrated with the party and feel like they're not getting their kind of return of investment on their vote. And there are some warning signs here, you know? Black voter turnout was not a great point for the Democrats in the midterms, even as they, you know, made up gains elsewhere. You've seen young people drop off in a lot of states too. And so I'm saying there's kind of things that I think made up the aspirational Obama coalition that really Democrats liked to tell themselves was kind of their future electorally. You've seen some drop off. And you've seen some Republican make gains in those pieces. And I think that's because of that increased level of apathy, of feeling that they want the party to be doing more than saying, I am not this. That's something that we heard on one side from Slotkin saying that was necessary. But then on the other side, I think the interview with Johnson shows the opposite end, where a lot of the party figures actually think, yeah, I see that argument, but we're winning this other way. And, you know, that's the short term versus long term tension, I think, when we think about democratic messaging. Uh, very good point. Because we should and say it's hard, right? Like it, people like yeah, Stacey right. Abrams and such, like they tried to do a kind of inspirational pull from the base. Bernie Sanders tried to do that on the national level, change the scope of the electorate. I think we should acknowledge that those things haven't really panned out, right? Like it is actually a really hard thing to do to change the scope of the type of people who vote. And so on one hand, I totally see why the strategy would be like, OK, well, we're going to focus on the immediate things in front of us, the immediate crisis and the message that most appeals to the people who are more likely voters. But at the same time, the kind of fullness of the democratic promise or the kind of follow through on kind of the building the coalition might require something more. Yeah. And to that point, instead, the Biden administration can point to a number of issues where they say we are further to the left of Obama. Right. On a yeah. whole lot of things, yeah. especially I mean, this was the big fight yeah. over spending, right? The covid spending bill and mm -hmm. how much to pump into the economy. They said, well, you know, the Obama folks, they were too timid. They didn't go hard enough. 100%. We're going to go right. We're going to go big. They took real pride in going being to the left of them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And even on and, you know, gosh, even think back to the olden days of Bill Clinton, almost everything 
that Bill Clinton stood for in the 90s has been completely Mm -hmm. decimated. The party has detached itself from everything from trade to welfare policy to crime Mm -hmm. and guns. So Mm -hmm. it is fascinating. Again, if you just look back over the last 20 years, the party has moved very left, even with an old time, old style Democrat as as the leader. Absolutely. Joe Biden's been a great weather vane of where the center Mm. of the party has been over those years. And so this version of him is a version that the 90s version of Joe Biden or the 2000s version of Joe Biden would have totally called a raging progressive lefty. You know, like (laughs) he totally has moved. And I think those reflections are really clear from him. At the same time, you know, I think the challenge of the moment is such where even that progression is running up against a Supreme Court, right? right? It's running up against all of these things where people are asking for even more kind of structural change. We'll be right back with more from The Odd Years. Thanks for tuning into the Odd Years podcast. We hope you're enjoying these interviews and we need your help. One of the best ways to support our podcast is by leaving a review on your favorite platform. Just a few words about what you like about the show. Your review not only helps us know what we're doing right, but it also helps other people find the Odd Years. Speaking of helping other listeners find the Odd Years, please share your favorite episode with someone you think might enjoy these conversations. On behalf of our team, thank you for your support. Let's talk about the the one Democrat, though, who is at least saying a lot of the things publicly that you and I hear privately from elected Democrats in Congress or in office, which is Congressman Dean Phillips from Minnesota, basically making the rounds these days saying, we need somebody else to run. Maybe I'll challenge Joe Biden, mm-hmm. he doesn't seem like he's actually going to do this, but nonetheless, he's saying out loud what a lot of other elected Democrats are saying to us in private. What do you make of this? And where does what does this tell us? I mean, I think that for a lay voter, you know, we talk to these folks who find it perplexing, what they feel is very intuitive of of course, Joe Biden would face someone or no way he's running again, is completely not spoken to by the political class. And so I do think that there's been a couple Democrats, Phillips, Warren, Castro, another, who have been trying to fill that void and at least acknowledge what they hear on the ground. When we talk to Alyssa Slack, I'm like, what do you say when people in your district are dissatisfied with Joe Biden? She says, I say that that's one piece of a larger puzzle. Like, that's a really incredible way for kind of rising stars to talk about an incumbent president, right? Like, they're not actually defending Biden as a inspirational leader of the party. They're defending the policy, and they're defending him as a leader of a thing that is preferable to Republicans, you know? But Joe Biden has kind of pitched himself as such, you know, famously, don't compare me to the almighty, pair me to the alternative, right? Like, he's actually been fairly comfortable with that underestimation. I know the White House folks, as we both know, kind of feel like they have been consistently underestimated and like kind of revel in that. And so like on one hand, you do have, I think the Phillips, these people, and I think particularly folks who are focused on the future, 
saying, you know, even if Joe Biden wins the nomination again, as I think most people would expect he would, that there needs to be some acknowledgement of people who are dissatisfied and who are looking for those type of alternatives. That's just not a risk that the Biden campaign is, is going to take, though. They have made a very intentional wagon circling. And so what I hear from members of Congress or those close to them is that the number one time they hear from the White House is to speak up about Biden's age, you know, to speak up about these things that are in the air and they want surrogates to talk about, but they're not going to acknowledge them from a kind of front-facing level. I think it's a very interesting tension right now because Democrats basically made an early bet and went all in. And that stability, that continuity is what they're going to pitch against what is certain to be a chaotic alternative. And they know that there's age downsides. It's just that they think the pluses are bigger. That's right. And how much of the downside or the the risk as they're putting together this calculation of replacing Biden is about worries of the vice president's ability to be a strong nominee if she were to get that. I mean, obviously, uh, if Joe Biden, to your point, if he in early 2023 said, I'm not running again, there would have been a fulsome Democratic primary. I have no doubt about that with many of the names you mentioned jumping in, including the vice president. But it seems like so much of the hand-wringing among Democrats comes around eventually to this issue of the vice president. What, What do you make of that? What do you hear about that? 100%. 100%. It's a kind of looming thing in the air, right? It's like, you know, people wouldn't start their complaints mm-hmm. with the vice president. But if you probe enough, it becomes clear that if there was someone in the wings who they felt was the next leader of the Democratic Party that felt really excited, inspired by, they wouldn't feel the same. <laughs> it, would just, would be a, it would just be a different thing. And so I do think that there is a Harris question that will be answered frankly, in the next year, because the Republicans are going to put so much attention and focus on her, because she, more than even Biden, will be the representative of the campaign on the road. And I think the media scrutiny and pressure of her, even as Republicans make the argument that Biden is too old, will require her, I think, to be placed under the same level of microscope that, frankly, she wasn't that well served by in her own presidential run. Right. And so I think the question is still open, in my opinion, about like how necessarily that falls. But, you know, she's had a three to four years of what I think has not necessarily been. Well, the good the good part of that time is, you know, I was at the African Methodist Convention, a kind of old black Christian group was having an annual convention in Florida as Vice President Harris was the speaker. And it was a reminder to me about how she has had three straight years of basically having touchstones with those kind of core Democratic constituencies that were kind of unfamiliar with her, but they're kind of Joe Biden's home base, right? The kind of people who were calling her a number two in 2020 when she was running. There has been more touchstones of those groups, I think kind of exist out in a media blind spot, and the role has given her more opportunities to speak to them. What it hasn't done is, I think, really flipped her reputation among the kind of national class, among a kind of donor class, 
who still have those unease about her. I think that's going to be answered in the next year. And I think the Biden campaign in the kind of direct reporting way is never going to replace her. (laughs) You know, there was a reason she was, there was like 15 or 16 images of her in the announcement launch video. They recognize that there is space to grow. But from everything that I hear, there is complete trust, or at least there is enough trust where they are going to give her the kind of space to earn back that reputation over the next year. But I think it's a real thing to watch is whether that kind of feeling gets turned around as she's the one on the Mm. road. Because that's the thing that I think actually can make people feel a little differently about the combo of them is if the person coming in the wings feels like maybe not the next leader of the party, but at least a force that people could rally around if they had to. That is a really, really smart point. So I guess we can expect that something that you will be delving into in your podcast will be checking in on Democrats' feelings about- Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's no secret. I think we're totally, I think it's a thing we all have to do. I think it's an interesting kind of looming piece here. Yeah, it's a great point. And so like, I, I really see, and I mean, much less, you know, we don't know who Trump, if he is the nominee, would choose. Right as a running mate. I think there's going to be like a a new kind of scrambling on that front. And, you know, the thing about Biden's age concerns is that they're not solved by just putting him on the road more, right? Right. Like, that's not a thing that is going to be the solution. The solution, if you really talk to the campaign, is going to be other people really stepping up on that front, mainly Vice President Harris. And so that's going to be the person on the road. That's going to be the person most visible And, you know, I think the DeSantis back and forth is a good example of what we can expect in terms of her as a vessel to kind of, you know, speak to some things that maybe Biden wouldn't as the Republican primary is going. That's a role she has to land because come next summer, I do think we're going to want to see if Democrats are feeling as uneasy about her this time around as many were last couple of years. Really, really, really good point. So given where you've been, what you've seen, who you've talked with for the last year. Are you convinced that we are going to have a rematch in 2024? That it's pretty much barring something unexpected happening or a health issue happening. Yeah. We've got a 2020 rematch happening in 2024. I think I I am of the opinion that it is we are careening to a rematch very fast. Yes. I'm also of the opinion that the lane exists for not for Donald Trump to lose. It reminds me of 2020 when I don't think that Joe Biden was destined to win, but I do think there was a field of candidates which made him more likely to win because he was playing in this kind of own sandbox on the key front of electability. And for Republicans, their key front is not electability. Correct. It is a kind of value matching for the looming threat that they feel the country's in. And nobody speaks to that to enough of their voters like Donald Trump. does. So, and I think the indictments made that more palpable for them too. And so- Absolutely. I guess it is that if DeSantis was a different person, I think this could have been a completely different race. I'm of the opinion that the elite, the kind of party donors and such, they did coordinate, you know? It's not like 2016 where folks didn't take the man seriously or whatever, whatever. I think that there was a group of people who thought, 
one after the midterms that that kind of weakened state would hold, that the indictments would further that, and that they had a pretty good alternative in this Ron DeSantis character. And I just think the slight miscalculation of those things has just really bolstered Donald Trump's position. I was just in Iowa. I think Tim Scott's going to do pretty well there. I think there's real evangelicals who are looking for alternatives. I heard the baggage point over and over. But the thing that really stuck out is when we would talk to people who thought Donald Trump had too much baggage, we're like, okay, so who you caucusing for? They're like, oh, I don't know. I might not caucus. We got a lot of those. We got a lot of, well, I don't really love the alternative. They're still torn about who they're, like, they have a clarity about Trump. But one, a lot of those people would still vote for him in the general election. Yeah. And two, are not feeling good enough about the alternatives or motivated enough to make the alternatives happen. Right. Right. That's the thing that I think is his biggest strength. It's not that Republicans are universally in love with him anymore, but enough of them are. And the other group still sees him as a champion for values. And that matters more than the electability concern. And, you know, a point I bring up about this is I'm always reminded of how much Republican voters bring up 2012 as like a time in which they feel like they were forced this electability guy with Romney and Obama blew him out. And then they were told the next guy couldn't win. And then he won. Right. And they bring this up all the time as a thing that they just don't believe. They just do not believe who can win and who can't win and who they're told can win and can't. hundred percent. And so it's like such a big difference from Democrats. And let's be clear, the electability thing worked for Biden because the existential threat of Trump was so significant. Right. You couldn't go anywhere in 2019 without hearing a Democrat tell you the biggest threat we face is Donald Trump. Right. And that's the only thing that mattered. I just don't want to lose. And you're exactly right that for this, first of all, convincing a Republican voter that Trump can't win, given not only the fact that he did in 2016, but also came so close in 2020. There are obviously Republican voters who believe he did win and it was stolen. But even among those who say, "Okay, he lost. But all we need literally is just like 20,000 more votes in a couple states and he wins. Yeah. Um, and they're right. And they're not wrong. Like he, exactly. The structural polarization stuff is so real. Like, it will be a close election. Exactly. Like, they're completely so, correct. <laughs> there's not going to be a poll that comes out that says Joe Biden's up by 25 points. And even if there were, why would they believe exactly. it? Exactly. Right? All the other polls were exactly absolutely exactly. wrong. So I'm absolutely with you on that point. And it's a good reminder. I always have to tell this to my guests and strategists that I talk to, I'm sure you do too, that Republicans trying to diagnose a Democratic primary or Democrats trying to diagnose a Republican primary is really not yeah. good news because they really don't understand yeah. what makes the other side tick. And you really have to appreciate what it is, Yes, especially the candidate who understands the moment is the candidate that wins. Yes the election or it wins the nomination. The Odd Years is brought to you by the Cook Political Report team. It's our way of sharing the questions we love to ask and the conversations we enjoy having behind the scenes. If you'd like to explore more of what we have to offer, consider subscribing at cookpolitical.com slash subscribe. Odd Years listeners can use the discount code ODD10, the number 10 that is, to save 10% on any subscription. 
This offer is available only to new subscribers. All right, Estad, if you have a couple more minutes, yeah, we also uh-huh. have a fun round asking <laughs> you questions yeah. that we ask our other guests, which I think are really fun. And the one we ask everybody, or that we start with that we ask everybody is, the first elected official that you met and interacted with, do you remember that first experience you had? It could be as a reporter. It could also have been when you were a normal person and not reporting on them. Interesting. In school, it's definitely Jesse White, who was this longtime Secretary of State. Oh, yeah, the Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had the Jesse White tumblers. Yeah, that's what I'm about to say. It's Jesse White had the Jesse White tumblers who would go all around like Southside and like South Suburb Chicago. And it was like a total brandy thing. And like, we used to see Jesse White in his tumblers literally everywhere. And... The thing about it is like, because I grew up in church, my dad pastor stuff, like politicians would come all the time. Like we would get in a big mayor's race, you know, like daily would show up to the big church convention. I saw state Senator Obama came to church convention to make a big pitch. Like it was an ecosystem where that was kind of around. But definitely, I remember the tumblers. It was so funny. I was thinking about the tumblers recently. And like Jesse White. Now, he, and he was Secretary one. of State. Is he still around? No, he just lost. I actually just looked this up. He literally lost like last like He was the Secretary of State like my whole life. <laughs> I think it's actually like. My whole, I grew up in, in the Chicago suburbs too. And he was there when I was growing up. He was, so, yeah, I mean, he was forever. in there. For like a million years. Yeah, I feel like Democrats finally realized that like Secretary of State's do other stuff and that there was like more scrutiny on the position. But I definitely feel like in church, we would get the speeches. And I remember we used to judge like whether they stayed, whether they stood and clapped, you know, because you would see so many of them. It was a little optics game. And so like, I don't know where that's where like punditry started. But we would totally see them all the time and yeah. definitely judge in the car about how they acted. So, instead, is that what got you into wanting to do what you do now? I mean, did the young elementary school instead always think, this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to yeah. end I up mean, being not, a journalist. I'm going to work for the New York Times. Not journalist, not New York Times. I guess I thought I wanted to work in politics. I loved like the strategic part of it. And in college, I think I got more cynical and I lost the kind of like belief in system necessary to do that part. And then journalism felt really important because it felt like, oh, I can, as someone who likes it and cares about it, I could actually speak to the missing thing here, right? I felt like politics was talking above people Mm. in a way that really I didn't like, you know? And journalism felt like a way to both needle that and to connect dots. And it just felt more, it felt like politics with a both realistic understanding. Because I remember being in Wisconsin and this is the first Tom Barrett Scott Walker race. And I was there as, you know, the state house was taken over and when they fled and all this stuff was kind of happening. And, you know, I talk about with this with Reed Epstein on our podcast, but I also remember learning about gerrymandering in Wisconsin. And it being like this shock to me, 
because I was working in Milwaukee and Milwaukee had been so surgically removed from the political process. And it made me not want to join the political process, but actually just to tell people about how it was kind of rigged. Mm. (laughs) And so I had this like experience when I felt like, oh, the thing I was planning to kind of do doesn't feel that satisfying. And actually, I just want to tell people like, there's a lot of other stuff going on here. And I think if media and, and journalism and politicians did a better job of actually connecting those dots, it would affirm your feeling that stuff doesn't change in my community. It would affirm your feeling that mm-hmm. like they're thinking about these people and not these people because there's actually reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Like there's actually a way that you help people explain you're not crazy. They have written Milwaukee out of the process. And so that's what felt motivating to me. But it was based out of the originally wanting to work in it and then thinking like, I don't think the stuff that they're doing is where I want to be. Right, right. Oh my God, that is a great story. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I did not know any of that. And especially I love, I wish I could have gotten like a little camera into your car after the young Barack Obama state senator came to the church to hear what you (laughs) all said about him. Do you remember what you said about it? I don't remember what we said. I do remember my parents being split in the 08 primary. And Mm. I remember it being like a, like a real Clinton-Obama disagreement between them. And that's the thing I really like. But the rise up was so fast, but it was like he was around. I mean, he was definitely right. was a, he wasn't around like a ton, but we knew of him as state senator-ish. And there's definitely like overlap in church world. And so even with the mayor's race that just happened, Brandon Johnson's, Like, I remember talking right after that Paul Vallis primary and people speculating about whether Johnson would increase his Black vote share. And then in my personal life, I could feel the church organizing, rallying around him in a way that eventually becomes clear in a political realm, too. And so all of these things have this connection. Really, I feel like church function as like my first understanding of organizing because particularly in Chicago, it has this rich history. Absolutely. And it was just kind of baked into the reality in a way that I like didn't know was actually a informing teaching thing. It was just like how it worked. Right. But it's absolutely the community glue and the impressions that the members of the church have of those political figures can tell you so much. Yes. about whether those candidates are going to actually yeah. fly. I would tell people this all the time in the 2020 primary. I'm like, you put every 20 of those candidates and you put them at the churches I grew up in. And I think Joe Biden wins every time. Like there was a level of comfort, a level of authenticity, and just someone who had been in those spaces for longer than I think mm. maybe anybody in those race, right? Like him going to those churches in the South was not a new thing, you know? And it was interesting to me how, like, there was such a cat chasing its tail. I don't know what even the metaphor is, but, like, I remember when, like, people were acting like Pete Buttigieg would just overtake the moderate lane, you know, or something like that. I'm like, that's not you actually seeing the people who make that up. We can talk about ideology so much that we actually just think, you know, moderate, progressive, whatever, whatever. When you're talking about moderates in the Democratic Party, you're actually not talking about people who think that way. You're talking about old folks in churches and who are religious and who 
like have trust and care politicians. Now, that's not something that someone just takes up overnight, that's you know? And I think that's the reason why I like coupling the polling. I love coupling the numbers with people is because it should help your understanding of that, right? Like it should actually teach you why those are the way they are. I was so sick of the Twitter convo that put those things in conflict. I'm like, it shouldn't be, you know? Right. That's, that's how it works. Human beings are not robots. <laughs> we, we are very complicated yeah. and that's what makes <laughs> politics. That's why we like to cover politics because humans right. are interesting and flawed and they make decisions that work for them in their own minds. Right. Even if you can't understand how they connected those two things. So, right. well, I am glad that you're out there, Stead, doing this work. I really encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't downloaded the run-up, do so. And instead, you you guys are on a little bit of a pause, or are you still yeah, coming out? Yeah, we are right now. Yeah. So we... Yep. So we are on a break until November or October. And then we've been doing reporting. And so we've been going to places, we've been building stuff. And our goal is to be all through the next year. So we're trying to changing to be a weekly show that can sustain through 2024. And then we also wanted to do some kind of field reporting work that can help lead us to 2024. So it's fun because we're having space to kind of do some reporting work and also kind of changing so that we can be a hub to like understand all of this stuff on a weekly way next year. So we're gone for right now. I think it'll better serve us as we're doing late this year and next year. I think that is very, very smart. Well, I enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, Can't wait too. to hear more on the podcast and I'll see you on the road. Yeah, thank you so much. The Odd Years is brought to you by The Cook Political Report and is produced by Allie Flynn and Catherine Hamm with podcast editing and sound design by Kate Wecker of Sonic Hook Creations.